I'll go ahead and get started here. So the reason for this diverse panel is it's something I saw General Petraeus do in 2007 uh, when he was putting together uh, a group of experts, and I wouldn't say we're experts up here, but this group that he was putting together around the table, he said, okay, I understand there's a lot you disagree with with this Iraq policy. I challenge you to tell me not only what's wrong with it, but how to fix it to make recommendations. So after speaking to my colleagues here on stage at, at, uh, at different places, such as green rooms at Fox News, <laughs> we talked about these things. We decided, why don't we put a panel together? So this is looking at, and the reason I'm not a moderator is I actually want to get in the fight a little bit. So <laughs> that's why I'm sitting on the panel. But I'll go ahead and throw it over to my, my colleague, Suzanne. Thanks, Michael. So uh, right, he wanted to be on the panel, and therefore that's why we've come prepared with yellow card and green card to keep it tame. I mean, a uh, <laughs> red card. Um, Anyway, welcome to um, Trump's 110th day in office. And we're here to discuss his Middle East policy, which when we first put this panel together, the kind of initial reaction that I saw kind of on the interwebs and social media was, oh, what is Donald Trump's Middle East policy? Which is why we have this panel here to discuss it. Um, you know, on the campaign trail, obviously Mr. Trump had tough rhetoric on Iran, which we've seen consistency uh, in that on that front. But he was less interested in getting involved in Syria, which we have seen the opposite of that. Um, you know, if you think, what is Donald Trump's Middle East policy, the number one thing that we think of is the fact that he uh, ordered a strike in retaliation for the chemical attack uh, by Assad. So we have a lot to discuss, and we're just going to jump right in, starting with Syria. You know, Dave has a lot of experience with uh, working with some of the Syrian opposition groups. Marie Harf was the deputy uh, spokesperson in 2013, when, which was the last time there was a discussion about launching an airstrike on um, Assad, which, as we all remember, didn't happen, which we really want to get to the bottom of, Marie. Um, and then, obviously, uh, Michael has very strong views about this. So And everything else. Good <laughs> stuff. So... Uh, President Trump's decision to order strike a strike on uh, the airbase in April, early April. What are your thoughts on it? Go. All right. So we'll start with the airstrikes, 59 cruise missiles the night of April 6th, uh, to finally do something about Assad's use of chemical weapons. And it was met with um, support from both sides of the aisle. There were there were. There were people in the Obama administration that were frustrated that not more was done when Assad crossed the red line. And then everybody else should be frustrated all along that we've ignored Assad's use of conventional munitions and barrel bombs to punish a, a population center and kill a lot of, uh, of civilians. So with Trump's strike in Syria, um, and which is really interesting, I'd really like for you to talk about the more robust package that you were able to look at in, in 2013. We, General McMaster presented Trump with an option. We can take out all six airfields or we can take out one airfield. Well, we, we attacked an airfield, we didn't necessarily take it out. So everybody was pretty happy about what happened, but let's look at what happened since then. Mm -hmm. Since then, Russia has put all of Assad's aircraft on Russian bases, protected with their S-400s. Since then, Russia, Iran, and Turkey have agreed to establish these safe zones, which are also no-fly zones for U.S. and coalition aircraft, which are also, in the case of Russia and Iran, protected killing zones for Assad and IRGC proxies on the ground. 
using Russian aircraft and using Assad's Air Force as the, as the air component and the ground force being Iranian proxies like Hezbollah and other militias coming from Iraq. So that should be very concerning. So we saw something positive on April 6th, and since then we've seen both Assad, Russia, and Iran adjust. And I'll throw it to you. So I think what's interesting in what Michael says is that the reason a lot of us supported, including myself as a, as a Democrat and a former Obama appointee, we supported those airstrikes not because they would change the trajectory of this conflict. And I don't think most people were arguing that they would necessarily change it. It was because they sent a message, which is not unimportant. I mean, I'm in communications, believe me, I, I think messages are very important. But so for about 24 hours, there was a lot of positive commentary that this sent a message to the Assad regime that your actions will have consequences and that the United States is not afraid to use military power. That's not insignificant. For me, the question of Syria, whether it's what to do with Assad, the moderate opposition, how to continue fighting ISIS, is beyond that limit, very, very limited use. And, and, and Michael's right. In 2013, the package of strikes that was presented to us from, from the military was actually much more robust. It was about 48 to 72 hours of strikes, if that's w the path we had chosen to go down. But beyond that, that limited strike, what is the overall policy in Syria? You know, in the course of two weeks, we saw the Trump administration start by saying Assad maybe didn't have to go, or the Syrian people could decide whether he had to go, to no, Assad still has to go. And, and look, I, I fully give administrations credit um, for getting into office, facing the realities, and changing from what you said on the campaign. I think that's natural. I think it's often healthy. I would argue on Trump's rhetoric on something like NATO, for example, that's healthy and probably a natural outgrowth of being the one governing. But in Syria, I still don't have a clear sense for what the strategy is. They haven't sent high-level folks to the, to the talks, the diplomatic talks, about where Syria is going to go from here on the diplomatic path. I think that's a one recommendation I would give to re-engage at a higher level, to get some senior people at the State Department who can engage at that level. Um, I get the focus on ISIS. That seems pretty clear to me. But the rest of it, I, I, I still think people like H.R. Like, uh, McMaster, who I know you worked for and with, these are smart folks who I hope and trust uh, are sitting there right now thinking, okay, what's the medium and longer term strategy? We can't do this day by day in Syria. That's, that's led, I think, to, to not great outcomes in the past. You're up. Um, well, thank you to our hosts at Hudson Institute yes. for having us. Uh, <laughs> it's an honor to be here. It's an honor to have a chance to speak to all of you. And um, as Susie said, we want to make this an interactive discussion and we want to mix it up and debate and there'll also be a chance for Q&A at the end. Um, with respect to the Syria airstrikes, my view is that this is the signature achievement of the Trump administration in the first 100, 110 days. The strikes happened about 35 days ago. They were an extraordinary turn of events for this administration. Certainly a few months ago, nobody would have expected that the Trump administration would order anything like a missile strike against mm -hmm. the Assad regime, even the week before the strikes happened. It, it, it seemed that it would not happen. Uh, Secretary of State Tillerson mm -hmm. had made comments that suggested that the administration was going to pivot towards Assad, not away from Assad. Um, it is, as Marie sent, 
an, an extraordinary symbolic message about the U.S.'s uh, lack of tolerance for the types of atrocities that uh, the Assad regime is committing in Syria and that Russia has supported. Mm -hmm. But I also agree with Marie that it's not clear what the strategy is going forward. And to the extent that the missile strike has caused Syria and the Assad regime to worry about the repercussions from the U.S. if they engage in further atrocities, and it has also similarly made Russia worry about the U.S. stepping up involvement in Syria, the longer we wait to do something else to signal that we have a continuing interest and policy in Syria, the more attenuated the impact of those strikes will become. And now you take the most recent thing that has happened with respect to Syria, which is the Astana talks and the agreement on de-escalization zones, and you have to note the lack of involvement or leadership by the U.S. and by the Trump administration in that agreement and in those talks. And you have to wonder what is going on and what is the Trump administration going to do next. There hasn't been a clear statement about the result of those talks, which is these four de-escalization de zones. The opposition in Syria does not support the agreement that came out of the Astana talks. The de-escalization de zones are problematic in the sense that they are not safe zones, and uh, they're also problematic in, in terms of the zones that were chosen, which are, were conspicuously supported by the Assad regime and may in fact be zones where it actually just helps the Assad regime right. to de-escalate violence. It doesn't help the other actors. So. My question, as Marie mentioned, is what is the strategy going forward? I would like to see a consistent strategy, and I, I firmly believe we should continue with the Obama administration's policy that Assad must go. So I think, and I think it's interesting that all three of us probably agree on two things, that we should have, and correct me if I'm wrong, that we should have taken military action in Syria actually before 2013, that the, oppor the best opportunity to really hurt Assad was probably 2012, late 2011, 2012. And we all support the 59 strikes. And I think we all probably want to see a comprehensive strategy outlined for where things go from here. So what I'm, so on that note, then can you tell us why it took so long for, you know, why did it take a president like Mr. Trump to come in and actually do something? Do, by do something, mean take strikes mm -hmm. militarily. That's a very complicated question. What happened in 2013? <laughs> so, well, so... What I just said was, look, I think a lot of people who follow this think that the time we could have had the most impact on the Assad regime by doing things like crater and runways would have been 2012. So starting from that standpoint, uh, and I know this is controversial, but in 2013 when, um, to say it, to put it lightly, to put it mildly, um, in 2013 we were presented with a, you know, the president did make a decision which he announced publicly to strike, and then sort of in the later hours of that decision-making decided after the UK had voted down strikes that given what the UK had done, it was important to go to Congress. That is a interesting point that we can debate. Legally, we didn't think we had to. He felt politically we had to. And what I remind people is at that time, sitting in meetings with Secretary Kerry, who had done all member calls, he had had multiple meetings on the Hill, Members of Congress were begging us to strike, and they were begging us to come to them. 
And that history has been a little, I mean, has been forgotten, I think, because they were saying, we want you to strike, we want you to come to us. So when the president made that decision to go to Congress, whether or not you agreed with it, we did, at least at first, legitimately believe Congress would say yes. And I'm not putting this on Congress. I'm just, some of this history has been either forgotten or, I don't know, muddled. So are, are you so, saying it all came down to the UK then? So, no. So then, then the question was, Congress didn't, Congress essentially said no, said we were not going to support you. So then we had a decision to make. Do we go without Congress, which we could have done legally, which would have been problematic in some ways, though. We had Republicans yelling at us saying, we want you to do more. We had Democrats saying, we want you to do less. And, you know, it's like Goldilocks. We were kind of caught in the middle. So you either go without Congress or you find another option. And what my boss, Secretary Kerry, did was negotiate an agreement that got an extraordinary amount of chemical weapons out of Syria. Was it all of them? No, obviously no, and we can talk about the reasons for that. Declare versus you were declared, right? Right. So, and so, and so, what happened after this was we had when we would have evidence that there were weapons they hadn't declared that hadn't been gotten out, we would give that to the OPCW, we'd give that to the UN. They're not investigative bodies. This was during an ongoing civil war. I'm not making excuses here. I'm just trying to explain what happened. So, in our mind, getting those tons and tons of weapons out, more than we went to war over in Iraq, by the way, which we thought the Iraqis had. I, I'm trying to get people to say, in and of itself, getting those weapons out, so today they're not in the hands of ISIS, which a lot of them would be given where they were located, or Assad, was in and of itself a good thing. Now, did not enforcing the red line hurt us diplomatically? Absolutely. Did it give some people the notion that, that they used politically, that we were unwilling to use military action or get involved? Absolutely. Those things are all true. They can all be true, right? So that was a long answer to your question. But I think that in general in Syria, President Obama was very hesitant to get involved militarily in the Middle East and another country. Now, he ultimately did a number of ways in Syria in fighting ISIS. But came into office having, for better or worse, looked at the war in Iraq and said, A, I don't think it's smart to get bogged down. And he was worried that we would get bogged down. He was worried that we couldn't say option three and four and five, what happens down the road. I think sometimes, sometimes you don't know that and you just have to act. But um, that is why I think, and the American people, quite frankly, were not clamoring to go back into the Middle East. So that's some context for, for all of this. And that's usually what the argument is. You, you do nothing or you do everything. Right, which is a problem. And there's always something in the middle. So it's either do nothing or commit 130,000 troops to an endeavor and you have, right. you have prolonged war. The, the interesting thing, and, and I didn't mean, or I wanted to interrupt you, but I didn't. I know. Um, I could see. I could tell. <laughs> you were very polite. Was, was there any hope? Because a lot of us believe there was a hope by the Obama administration that Congress would say no so they could justify not doing anything. So that, that's an interesting question. And that's become, I think, popular myth or like, that's become what people assume, that that's why President Obama did it, because he actually didn't want to strike and he was hoping Congress would say no. I mean, I can't get in President Obama's head as much as I would like to. I was sitting at the State Department with and him. And Rhodes could, though. Said, well, you know, um, <laughs> let's not go there. But um, I was sitting at the State Department working for John Kerry, who, it's not a secret wanted to do more in Syria, yes. including militarily. That is not it. He did not make that he a was secret. He, right. So I was sitting there with him. Look, he's also a creature of the Senate, so he understood the respect that was being given. 
I tr so what I can tell you is from our perspective at the State Department and the conversations John Kerry was having with his former colleagues, they were saying, we will vote for you. And that's what, when Kerry then went up to testify, when I was, um, we all went up with him, he testified for hours and hours and hours on this before um, the Foreign Relations Committee, there really was a sense that Congress wanted to say yes. The politics then changed. I would just say, having looked at that issue at the time, I find it hard to believe that you could have thought that Congress would pass a measure to support President Obama when the House was controlled by the Republicans, and the Republicans disagreed with President Obama on just about everything, and were looking for more things to fight him on. And one of the sort of real inconsistencies in the Obama administration, my point of view as a per person who supported President Obama, is the decision to go into Libya without any congressional authorization and to resist attempts by Congress to force the administration to get a congressional authorization in Libya, which the Obama administration at the time justified on the basis that we don't need congressional authorization. Right to do a military intervention. And the Obama administration exceeded the periods under the War Powers Resolution and justified that on the grounds that we did not have people on the ground. This was just an air campaign, right. and therefore we didn't have to follow the War Power Resolution. And then decides in Syria that none of those justifications applied and that we actually have to get congressional authorization. Not that we have to. We never said legally we okay. have to. That we needed to, or there was better. an imperative. Right. When, we, when the Obama administration insisted it didn't need it for Libya, there's an internal inconsistency there, especially when you um, look at the fact that President Obama had drawn a red line in Syria. He, the red line didn't say, I will act if Assad uses chemical weapons and if Congress lets me do so. Um, is it because Iran didn't care what we did in Libya? No, this is this is another myth. Yes, I mean, we could, we'd be remiss not to mention yeah, Iran's look, so role. Let's bring up this. Iran here, but let me just really quickly respond to you that, I mean, First of all, it got voted out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And this was one place where Republicans were saying, we want you to act. We've been asking for years. And so I think we did learn a lesson from Libya. Well, we learned a bunch of lessons from Libya. But when it comes to Congress, I do think, and, and from what happened in the United Kingdom, and I think broadly speaking, and we don't have to go down this rabbit hole now, we then tried to get an authorization for the use of military force for Syria, which went nowhere in Congress because everyone was fighting. There is actually a really interesting conversation that could take up a whole day about what role Congress plays in foreign policy and how when we actually, when our administration went to them and said, please be an equal branch, they were like, whoa, whoa, we don't want to have to own that. Both sides of the aisle, right? So that's a whole other conversation. There is this myth out there that in September 2013, when we were talking about whether to strike August-September timeframe, that, that Iran factored into our calculations. And, and I can tell you, as someone who was there at the time and who then did the Iran negotiations, I mean, Secretary Kerry didn't even meet with Javad Zarif until a month, at least a month later, which in, in New York, which is what restarted the nuclear talks. So yeah, there were these secret behind the scenes talks about whether or not possibly we could ever negotiate someday, but there were no nuclear negotiations at the time. The JPOA, the first step, wasn't done till no, the end of November. So I can promise you there were a lot of things that went into this decision about whether to strike. I was never in a meeting or a conversation where Iran was part of that. And people might not believe me, but I can just tell you what I heard. Well, bring, it, bring it back into <laughs> Trump's first 100 days. Yeah. Right. So there were uh, 
We're Thank officials. You. No, no, but we need to lay the context. We need to lay the groundwork here to do the context. We could talk about this all day. So but but uh... there were, there were um, people in the administration that were worried that if we did something in Syria, that it would affect the JCPOA. Leon Panetta said as much, that if we went against Iran's people in the Obama interests, yes, went against Iran's interests in Syria and Iraq, it could, it could derail the JCPOA. Well, the first 100 days of the Trump administration have actually proven that false. Iran didn't walk away when we struck Assad's air, air base in Syria. Uh, they didn't walk away when we announced new sanctions on I Iranian facilitation or export of terrorism. Right. So we've called Iran's bluff, meaning the U.S. has called Iran's bluff, something the last administration, some critics would say, were, was afraid to do because it would derail the JCPOA. Yeah. So, so I think it's, it's great now. So we've called Iran's bluff. We know they're not going to walk away from the Iran deal if we do things in Syria, and I, we should do more. Yeah. Well, and just a word on Liam Panetta. I mean, I, I worked for him when he was CIA director. I was his spokesperson. He left the administration long before the Iran deal was ever negotiated, and uh, I think his, his insights are interesting but not informed by actually policy discussions because he wasn't there. So... As much as I like him, um, I discount a little bit of what he has to say. Um, I think that you are right that the Iran deal is more durable than sometimes people fear on both sides. We can take more politically here at home, and I think the Iranians can take more. We designated a number of uh, Iranian entities in the Obama administration after the deal. The Iranians always throw a fit, and it still holds. I don't know if there's a scientific way to find where that line is. I think one thing I would at least, and we've talked about this before, the Iranians are in their own political season. They have a presidential election coming up. They have their own domestic politics, which sometimes we in the U.S. forget because it seems like a monolith. And they say a lot publicly for domestic political consumption. What I look at, right, is those diplomatic conversations between our experts and their experts. Are they continuing to do what they said they do on the nuclear side? They are. And so I, for now, which is a good thing for now. So I, I you're right that I think it, can, it is more durable than we think, but I don't think we should discount that there is a line after which the Iranians will say, you guys aren't upholding your end of the bargain. And we're not close to that now. Well, what the main complaint. What does that line look like? Well, I mean, you, you know, look at the 159 pages and I'll of the deal and we can, we can talk about that. But, um, we were very clear during the negotiations with Iran that we would continue to sanction them for terrorism, human rights, ballistic missiles, all those things. I know you want more. I know you're a big proponent of more sanctions, and that even the and we would continue to have differing interests in a whole bunch of issues. They complain about that publicly because they complain about everything publicly, um, but so far it hasn't affected the deal. And the biggest complaint is something I think we all agreed on last night was that Zarif keeps complaining that we haven't opened up the U.S. banking system to Iran. And that's something we should continue to do, right? Deny Iran access to the U.S. dollar, to the U.S. banking system, as long as they support terrorism, export terrorism. Yeah, and we're not lifting the embargo. I mean, if, if anyone remembers talking about campaign rhetoric, President Trump at one point as a candidate said, we got a terrible deal because American businesses can't benefit from this. He almost like flirted with lifting the embargo, which I don't think he actually meant. It was a flash in the pan and then it went away. But um, 
Yeah, none of us would want to open the U.S. banking system system to Iran for a whole bunch of reasons, right? And that was certainly never something we agreed to do. But Zarif keeps insisting that it was a promise made by Kerry that we would do that. Well, it's not in the deal, and he knows that. And, you know, again, people say things, people here say things for domestic political reasons. I mean, you know, I lived through Tom Cotton writing that letter to... To directly to the to the Iranian government during the negotiations, and you know they get that we have our own politics too, and what matters is what's actually happening on the ground. So there's a lot more tougher tone and tougher rhetoric on Iran, right? But is is Trump doing anything so differently towards Iran than Obama right now? And on that note, towards ISIS, I mean, he talked about bombing the hell out of out of ISIS on the trail, but. Is he really, is his policy on these two fronts really that different? And obviously, you know, Iran is on the ground in Iraq, so that's why these two are tied together. With respect to Iran, I personally have not detected anything tangible that shows a different stance by the Trump administration with respect to Iran, except for statements that uh, President Trump and the administration have made. So it, it's yet, we're yet to see what's going to happen. I would note that Secretary of State Tillerson certified to Congress three weeks ago that Iran is complying with the nuclear agreement, which was a surprise. Um, I think the, the Trump administration was presented with a difficult choice. They had to certify Congress to Congress whether or not right. that uh, Iran was complying, but they made a choice to say it was. If they had said Iran is not complying, the agreement would immediately have started to fall apart. And uh, the U.S. would no longer have the obligation to um, uh, uh, continue to roll back sanctions. So the Trump administration made that affirmative decision <coughs> to continue to comply with the Iran agreement, which is a stark contrast to what President Trump said during the campaign when he said he would rip up the deal on the first day. And I think he's facing the reality that you can't just tear up this deal. Even if you didn't support the, the elements of it at the time we signed it, we have certain obligations and we're receiving certain benefits from it. And we've given up certain things to Iran that were, that make it wise to continue with the agreement. The question is, what are we going to do outside of the agreement right. to curb Iran's uh, support for terrorism, its support for groups like Hezbollah, and the other things that Iran does to foment uh, violence and destabilization in the region? And I have yet to see any action by the Trump administration what on that. What are some recommendations you would give them, uh, how they could confront that activity? Well, More I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, delve too much back into Syria, but a lot of it is with respect to Syria. The, you know, the 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 flirtation by the Trump administration with supporting Assad would also be a marked uh, movement towards Iran on Syria, which I think would be a huge mistake. So in Syria, uh, what we ought to be doing is insisting that Iran does not have a role in a, a it does not have a legitimate role in deciding the future of Syria, and that the best thing Iran could do would be to pull back uh, its support for Hezbollah and the groups in Syria. And Iran should not have been part of the Astana agreements and should not be part of the Geneva talks in a significant way. That would be one important one. So, so wait, that's actually interesting. Um, we, and I'm very curious to hear both of your thoughts on this, um, we pushed the Saudis to let the Iranians sit at the talks for negotiations because 
while none of us really want Iran to be there, they are a player in Syria, and pretending like they're not ignores, as we all know, a reality on the ground. So is there a way to get a diplomatic agreement or something, path forward, without one of the key players at the table? Do you, th- do you guys think... Well, I, I would, I, I mean, I should, I should amend my statement. I, you, you, if, if, if Iran is going to be statement. there, <laughs> if Iran is going to be there, it should play a different role than it's played thus far. Okay. Its role should be... Um, uh, with the objective towards a political resolution, which would involve uh, Assad eventually stepping down, and in fact, one of the most one of the most likely ways we will ultimately, if we ever get Assad to step down voluntarily, will be from Iran and Russia pressuring him to do right. so. Okay, that's thank you. So we all agree with this, then? Uh, no, no. <laughs> I thought we were all trying to agree the whole thing. No, no, I agree. I agree that Yield the floor Iran to the gentleman the from Texas. <laughs> from Texas requests two minutes. Uh, so, so with regards to Iran, what, what is Iran doing in Syria? There, for them, the removal of Assad is a red line. Uh, they are moving Iraqi Shia militias to Syria, not to defeat ISIS, but to keep Assad in power. The removal militarily or through some diplomatic solution where he's no longer part of the future of Syria? Well, Are those both the red lines for Iran? The red line. They want him in place or at least somebody from his family in place to, to maintain the regime. Their Shia crescent is very important to them. That, you know, Tehran, Baghdad, Damascus, Beirut uh, link. So what, it, what Iran is doing now, it, it's, it's buying up properties and moving in Shia pilgrims and exiting Sunni populations to be able to change the demographics in Syria in places. These safe zones that they're setting up, these no-fly zones, what we need to do, we talked about what should the Trump administration do now. We need to put in our own safe zones now, our own no-fly zones now, and do things. Because if you look at the territory that that Russia and Turkey and Iran are marking up, Russia and Iran agree on on the locations that protect the regime. And Turkey's safe zone is to to keep the the YPG and the PKK from doing more in the area, more, more, more so on maintaining control of those areas than fighting ISIS. So that leaves the U.S. with the role of Raqqa and Deir ez-Zor. What do we do there? What do we do with ISIS? And we're starting to lose territory on this, this chessboard that, that everybody else is taking over because we're not doing anything about it. So we need to do that now. Um, every calculation that Russia, Iran, and by extension, North Korea and ISIS and other groups have taken is based on U.S. inaction. Well, let's do this because the Americans military can't do anything. Military inaction, yeah. and that's that's the most important thing right now when it comes to Syria. Is you know establishment of a safe zone or a no-fly zone is is a military action without the kinetic action necessarily. But we're we're losing time and space to be able to do these things. And again, Iran. And ISIS see Iraq and Syria as one battlefield. They don't see a border. So Iran is able to do a lot of things in Iraq that we're not paying attention to. Right now, and we talked about this last night, so we, we were talking about, so what is the response if we go after Iran's nuclear program? If we do an eight-hour air raid and we set them back 10 years, what I is the response? I was not advocating for that. No, no, no. This is just a hypothetical question. <laughs> we were wargaming last night yeah. over. What is the response? Usually it's a Hezbollah rocket attack on Israel. That's the first thing that, that, that we can expect. But now there's a different dynamic in that the U.S. forces in Iraq are outnumbered 20 to, run, 20 to 1 by IRGC-affiliated Shia militias, not only in the Iraqi military, but in the Hashid al-Shabi, 
and other groups like Asab Ahul Haq and Kitab Hezbollah. So literally you have 5,000 to 7,000 U.S. advisors basically targets for Iranian reprisal if we do something. So that calculation has to be in there. And like you mentioned last night, all Iran ever has to do is simply ratchet it up a little bit and there's destabilization. And it's something that Matt has said and I think was very good for our Sunni regional allies to hear that and for uh, for Israel to hear that and and for for a lot of people in in this country to hear that anytime you see something nefarious or something going wrong in the Middle East, you can look to Iran as part of the reason for that instability. So those are positive messages. But again, there is the diplomatic part that you're talking about. How does Iran become a productive partner in this in this they we're not even productive right let's not let's not they don't they but you they build airfields like that. they do in iraq they build they provide electricity like they do in iraq they, they demonstrate the ability to do things in iraq that the iraqi government cannot do such as build right. infrastructure so that's so, a positive thing in iraq but the militias the irg influence the the influence on the shia political parties right. is destabilizing and there are two things that we've also talked about that that it seems like um both McMaster and Mattis are very informed in their how they view Iran through their experience in Iraq, which we're all informed by our experiences. But that um, I think has become very clear through how they're they're dealing with Iran. You know, what, the argument I would make, I mean, the nuclear deal at all seems like we're putting it in a sort of a separate category um, because it's in place and it's working, and the Trump administration needs to figure out what they're doing with it. But that was exactly why we wanted, and we can argue about the deal and its merits or demerits as people see, but precisely because of all the negative and nefarious things they do in the region, from our perspective, it was most important to make sure they couldn't do that backed up by a nuclear weapon. And 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 that's why we focus so much on these on these nuclear issues. Well I think the reason for again, Tillerson certified the State Department saying that Iran was complying with the JCPOA. And then and then North Korea did what it did. So North Korea is Iran's worst enemy right now, because Tillerson has now said we do not want Iran, and this deal, the JCPOA, does allow Iran to become a nuclear power if it doesn't cheat in 12 to 15 years, if it does cheat in one year. A nuclear weapons power or a nuclear power? I mean, they already know how to make nuclear fuel. To develop a, a, a nuclear weapon. Okay, well, we can debate that. But let's talk about North Korea. Well, so that's, that's the reason for the relook on the JCPOA is based on what 15, North Korea has done. In, well, because it's the same deal Clinton secured with the North Korea. No, no, no. The, the deal Clinton secured was like four pages and had no transparency. The additional protocol wasn't even in place at the It, it didn't have the 20 pages of sanctions relief to and the to 35 and the 35 pages of nuclear uh, restrictions that Iran is adhering to. It is true that after 15 years, until year 15, Iran is not allowed to have enough fissile material material or make it at, an, at a high enough enriched rate that it could build a bomb. So for 15 years, if they hold to it, and we're making, you know, watching. I know the intelligence community where, where a lot of us have worked is watching very closely. There is a question. After year 15, there are restrictions that go out to 20 and 25, and there are some restrictions in the deal that last forever, but some of the restrictions start to come off. So there is a legitimate question as policymakers. Uh, I don't know if the Trump administration, you know, we're not, we're not quite there yet. We're only at day 110. But at some point in year eight, when we get towards the broader conclusion, which is something the IAEA issues for nuclear states, when we get towards year 10, I hope that then policymakers are going to be discussing what happens after that and how we continue to enforce the provisions of the deal that remain in effect and, and, uh, and 
we'll see where Iran is then. We'll see where the U.S. is then. There's a whole bunch of factors that will happen between now and then. But do you want to go back to ISIS or? Well, I feel like you did. I could. Yeah. Feel so it. you also asked about ISIS and if there has been a discernible change in policy. Uh, by the Trump administration with respect to ISIS, and I have not really seen that yet other than a, a couple of things. Um, first of all, I do think that the Trump administration has uh, loosened the rules of engagement for U.S. forces on the ground in Iraq and Syria and has increased the number of special forces in Iraq and in Syria and is planning to continue to increase those forces. But uh, otherwise, uh, the Trump administration seems to be plan following the battle plan of the Obama administration with respect to liberating Mosul. Um, in, in Mosul, uh, about half of western Mosul has now been liberated. And you can, continue, you can expect ISIS to continue to fight in the parts of western Mosul where they are, but they will eventually be pushed out. ISIS continues to be in two other major cities in Iraq, Hawija and Talafar. And, and, and there are questions about how we're going to liberate those cities and which forces on the ground will be part of the coalition that will liberate those cities, but I think you can expect during this year for those cities to be liberated as well. The questions that the Obama administration kicked down the road uh, with respect to Iraq, like post-Mosul liberation governance and security, have not been resolved by the Trump administration, and I, don't, I have not seen what the plan is for resolving those questions. Real quick, uh, so this might be a criticism of the... The Trump administration has loosened the restrictions for for being able to conduct uh, count you know attacks on the ground. So loosen loosen the rules of engagement. Uh, one of the biggest problems that that I see is in the continuation of what Obama is doing is that we continue to provide kinetic a kinetic uh, resource to Iranian proxies on the ground in Iraq, and what we're doing with Deir Ezzur in Raqqa, we're using a a Kurdish force to go into a Sunni area, a predominantly Kurdish force to go into a Sunni, the Sunni areas of Deir and Raqqa. Again, in Iraq, we've yet to build the clear and hold force that can actually keep ISIS out of any place we've cleared yet. And in Syria, we're doing the same thing. Now, the rules of engagement. So if you look at the attack in Mosul where the U.S. is, is being blamed for the deaths of 200 Sunni civilians in Mosul, that was based on using an Iranian proxy on the ground to provide the details for that strike. And what I say that is it was a federal police unit that actually recommended this. Well, the federal police is heavily dominated by Badr Corps and Shia militias. In, in Raqqa, when we did the same thing, uh, the Raqqa offensive north of Raqqa, we used against a, a person on the ground to tell us to drop U.S. steel on target and we ended up killing coalition members. So the strategy needs to change in that it needs to be U.S. eyes and ears on the ground directing in U.S. munitions to avoid uh, civilian casualties. Now, one interesting thing, I don't know if anybody's noticed that the new minister of, the new director for the Iraqi Ministry of Interior is a former IRGC lieutenant, um, Qasem al-Araji. He was a detained at Cropper. He was part of... Uh, the IRGC-led insurgency that were both targeting Americans and targeting Iraqi politicians that didn't want to 
stay in line. He defended the U.S. killing 200 Sunni civilians because he's okay with that. It's okay to, to bomb Sunni civilians in Mosul because at the end of the day, they're collaborators. They allowed ISIS in. So, so we have to look at all these things. And I think with regard to Syria and Iraq, and to your point, we haven't started fighting ISIS as they move into the al-Qaeda model. We're so heavily focused on taking terrain away that we're ignoring that ISIS can conduct attacks in Baghdad, Ramadi, Fallujah, Tikrit, and every area that has been cleared in the past, ISIS still has cells. They've just learned not to plant a black flag and not to tell anybody that they're in control of this territory. So we're simply resetting the conditions if we don't change this. And, and that's one of the things that, that, you know, having worked for both Madison McMaster and before Flynn was fired, they all said three things. The only way to defeat a Sunni insurgent group is with Sunni intelligence and Sunni manpower. And that provides the, and, and also to, along with that, to provide the political space to get their government to start reconciling with their, with their estranged populations. And the Trump administration, I think, is accelerating the use of force to, to declare a victory against ISIS. And I think we're simply resetting the conditions to the day before ISIS rolled in. On that note, yes. Yeah. yeah, sorry. And more depression. <laughs> well, it might be a good time to move on to, you know, speaking of ISIS, moving on to Libya, um, which is another place that you have a lot of experience and you worked with the rebels there, the National Security <laughs> Council. Um, we saw that Trump had a visit with the Italian Prime Minister, and, you know, he said that he hands off, hands off Libya. Um, presumably, the, Libya will come up in his meeting with the Pope when he goes to the Vatican. What do we do about Libya? What should he do? Well, uh, <coughs> with respect to Libya and and the Middle East more broadly, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, a, a lot of people were anxious about is how hard it is to predict what the Trump administration will do in the Middle East. And nowhere is it was it more difficult to predict than Libya, where there were almost no pronouncements mm -hmm. or just uh, statements by the Trump administration, uh, by Trump during the campaign about Libya, other than just criticizing um, the Benghazi, uh, the attack on the mission in Benghazi and blaming Hillary Clinton for that. Um, the, really the first substantive statement uh, President Trump has said about Libya is what he said in the meeting with um, the Italian Prime Minister, which is, was basically, we don't have an interest there. Um, I think, personally, that's a, a big mistake. Uh, we have a very significant interest in Libya, but that confirmed what I think a lot of Libyans uh, worried about, which is that it would be quite easy for President Trump to ignore Libya, because if things go south in Libya, that's one of the easiest places for President Trump to blame the previous administration. He can just say it's uh, Libya, the, the mistakes and problems in Libya are the result of the Obama administration, of President Obama and Hillary Clinton, and wash his hands and ignore Libya. And while it's true that Europe has and is even greater, more impacted by Libya than the U.S., the U.S. has very significant interests there as well. And unfortunately, I don't think there will be a resolution to the current crisis in Libya without some leadership from the U.S. And people in Libya are looking for leadership from 
the U.S. Now, there have been some developments in the last week that are positive with respect to Libya. There was a meeting from Prime Minister Siraj of the Government of National Accord and General Haftar. Uh, there is some discussion that they've uh, reached some sort of agreement. They have been uh, rivals and, and associated with rival governments up until now. Um, it is at least possible that they have agreed on elections. That's what the media is reporting, that there would be elections in 2018. But a lot needs to be done to get to the point of us having um, uh, fair elections. And that will include solving some governance issues and in particularly solving security issues and most importantly getting some of the militias to stand down and that in my view as i said before is going to take leadership from the u.s we cannot afford to have libya become a failed state and although libya is in a crisis it is not where syria is and in my view if we do not engage in, in Libya in a more significant way, it will end up like Syria. And here's where I'm going to take this back to my time at the State Department, where, or to the State Department in general. Um, the fact that they haven't appointed senior people, I know like State Department staffing is not that sexy an issue, but it has some real world, real world impacts. You know, the last year of the Obama administration, John Kerry and you can criticize the substance of what he was trying to negotiate, but he was personally involved in the negotiations over Libya, Yemen, Syria, obviously Iran. And I'm not saying Secretary Tillerson needs to be the one doing all this, but they don't have assistant secretaries tasked with this. They don't have senior special envoys tasked with this. Who from the U.S. is looking at Libya today? Well, I think and it's... how can you play, but how can you play, to your point, a senior, a, a leading role, the United States of America, leading from in front, as we all want America to do, if you don't have people at the State Department or, or at the National Security Council, not Jared Kushner, who has a lot on his plate already, um, but people at the National Security Council or at the State Department, senior people who are tasked with playing a United States leadership role here, I don't think anybody is. And that worries me. I think, someone who thinks diplomacy should be a key tool of international relations and American power in the world. I think Brett McGurk's to blame, and I'll tell you why. He's, oh, I can't wait to hear he's this. He's doing everything. He's, a, he's <laughs> the president's envoy to defeat ISIS. He does that. He's, he secured the release of American prisoners by making sure that the pallet of 140 uh, $1.4 billion dollars landed before Jason Rezion could be released. But I think he's doing too good a job, and the reason I say that or he, he looks like he can do everything, is because he'll actually tweet that five ISIS were killed today in two vehicles. But that's not my question. We had senior envoys so, for Libya. We had someone senior working on Yemen. We had a senior person attending all, of, all, those people. all of the Syrian well, negotiations. Brett McGurk can do it all. Well, no, no, no. I mean, I know that's a funny, funny one-liner, but, you know, we didn't have, we had senior diplomats, and Secretary Kerry or Deputy Secretary Tony Blinken were intimately familiar with all of the details of these negotiations. And I'm, I had high hopes for Rex Tillerson when he came in because, you know, I think I thought he brought a lot of experience and didn't seem over-ideological. I don't think he wants the job. He said, actually, he said very publicly he didn't want it. And I have seen no indications that he is willing to take the steps, even with some restructuring, to staff up the State Department and American diplomacy as a result 
and make sure we are showing leadership because if we don't, Russia's going to, China's going to, Iran's going to, and we're going to be left sitting here thinking, where's America? Right. And that is a problem no matter what political party you're a part of. And Madison McMaster both suggested that the State Department not be cut and that it actually Well, Tillerson needs to suggest that because I think he supports some of these cuts, and I hear from my former colleagues that they are terrified, and that's a problem. Well, we're already seeing, you know, Russia kind of its influence growing in Libya. Definitely working with Sisi. I mean, where, where the U.S. disengaged under the Obama administration, Putin started filling the gaps. We've seen this by courting Sisi, uh, courting Erdogan in some cases, um, but, but definitely in Libya to the point where if you look at where Russia is actually fighting ISIS, well, they're not fighting ISIS in Syria. They're not, but they are helping Sisi fight ISIS along the Libyan-Egyptian border. Yeah. And they say they're helping to fight ISIS in Afghanistan by providing lethal aid to the Taliban, which kills Americans. So there are a lot of places where when we look at what Russia is doing, we need to look at what they're doing in Syria and their complicity in the killing of civilians. We need to make Russia responsible for everything that goes wrong in Syria, uh, basically calling them Assad's Air Force. How do we do that? By grounding Assad's Air Force, and that would be something I would recommend, and I'm sure based on your 72-hour target packet that you talked about in 2013, I think that was actually the goal, to, to ground Assad's Air Force, leaving Putin responsible for any munition that falls on the civilian. But, but looking at what, what Russia's doing in other places, um, Tillerson made some comments on human rights, and that was something that was pretty, pretty interesting, that had Senator McCain respond in an op-ed saying that that's not what America's about. But to Tillerson's point, I mean, if we want to curb North Korea's nuclear program, we need to ask human rights violator China to weigh in. We need to ask human rights violator Russia to weigh in. If we want to solve the situation in Syria, we need to ask human rights violator Iran to do the right thing, human rights violator Russia to do the right thing, all without the preconditions of fixing their human rights issues. So I can see the pragmatic argument that if the U.S. wants to get things done, you can't ask China, Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia to fix their human rights issues first right. before they help us with ISIS, al-Qaeda, Will you Korea, make a calculation about Hezbollah. what's the most important threat or what's the best interest? I mean, the interesting thing about your argument, and I don't necessarily disagree, is that that's not a traditional Republican argument. And you've seen not just John McCain, but Marco Rubio and other Republicans who slammed our administration for eight years for not standing up or dissidents in Russia or or wherever. We're not addressing human rights and but striking a nuclear deal. Exactly. Right. So, I mean, just domestically in the United States, when it comes to how we talk about foreign policy, we're in an interesting sort of parallel weird universe that I haven't quite figured out yet. Yeah, I would. I think candidly, the I think, real world versus the ideal world. <laughs> I mean, the Secretary of State's statement is stupefying, and it's particularly odd for a Secretary rights? of State to say that. Um, and we are in the odd position of actually maybe having a Secretary of Defense who's more willing to stand up for human rights abroad than our Secretary of State. Um, and I think that's what you know Senator McCain's is is complaining about. And uh, obviously, it's hard to enforce our um, 
our priorities abroad at the same time as uh, you know trying to force countries to obey human rights. But some of the things that we do, you can only base them and justify them based on human rights and go back to the missile strikes in Syria. The only possible justification for the missile strikes in Syria was a human rights, humanitarian-based justification for under the responsibility to protect of the United Nations, which was that we engaged in military force in Syria without the permission of the country, without even a UN Security Council resolution, because we felt we had to do so in order to stop the atrocities in Syria. And this administration uh, ought to be honest about that and say that's why we did it and indicate that we're willing to do that in other places if, if as a last resort if we have to do so. But Secretary Tillerson seems to be saying, no, I don't agree with that. Well, since the, since the 59 uh, cruise missile strike on Syria, there have been 248 Sunni civilians killed by other munitions dropped from airplanes, and we should in be Syria. as outraged about that. Exactly, in Syria. We should be as outraged about that. And then, yeah. you know, two, two sarin attacks, two nerve gas attacks happened December 12th, on December 12th in two different areas, killing, you know, 70, uh, 72 people. And I don't even remember hearing about that. No, I don't either. And that's, you know, there's a whole other conversation about the media and what gets covered, and BBC does better than most, I will say. Um, but what, what became interesting to me about the debate about using military force in Syria in the last year and a half of the Obama administration was the military privately but also publicly said, if we make a strategic decision to use military assets against the Assad regime, that takes away assets from going after ISIS. And they said that publicly. And it's not one-to-one, -one, and you guys are much better experts on this than I am. But that was an argument that we heard a lot from military leaders. And because we had made a decision that ISIS was the priority, I think that some people in the Obama administration, when they would hear that, would say, we don't want to take any resources away from ISIS. And it's just an interesting, I mean, resources are, we have a lot of resources in the military, but they're not infinite, right? Well. On that note, we can't, we'd be remiss to not mention the Arab-Israeli peace process. <laughs> We're going to solve Dave everything today. Have, Dave has thoughts on. Well, I mean, <laughs> the one thing that we thought the, this administration would focus on in the Middle East is the Middle East peace process. And in fact, it's the one thing that President Trump discussed quite a lot. He appointed someone very close to him. Uh, his son-in-law to be in charge of the Middle East peace process. Um, I think uh, he, he, his statements have consisted of saying that Middle East peace is achievable and we can achieve it. Why can't we achieve it? Um, and, but in his exuberance, I think he's overlooked how difficult it is. But I would note he um, had a meeting with uh, Abbas and he has started the process of getting smart on the issues and that's important because just engaging at the beginning is uh, integral to creating a process. And other presidents have waited too long in their presidency to try to tackle this very difficult, thorny issue. I would also note, and again, trying to compare what he, what president has done in his first hundred days in office versus what he said he would do, that he has pivoted away from one of the things he said he would do, which was to move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which I think would have actually been an impediment to the peace process with bringing, without bringing any real positives back to the U.S. We're not 
going to gain anything by moving our embassy. We're not able to do diplomacy better from Jerusalem than Tel Aviv, and it would be also a very substantial expense to build a new embassy in Jerusalem. So in terms of activities and actions that we have seen so far with respect to the Middle East peace process, we've seen the meeting with Abbas. We've, we know he's going to Israel, and certainly the process peace process will be on the agenda there. And we see a slight pivot away from a very, very strong support for Israel uh, toward <coughs> a, navigating towards a position that maybe will be more amenable to the Palestinians, which is necessary, I think, for if the U.S. is going to be involved in brokering a deal. But we well, don't yet... away from his support of the settlements, which... Exactly. Like. But they haven't... Um, focused on the concept of a two-state solution, which I don't know if it's on purpose or not. I mean, I'm assuming it's on purpose. But you said something that I think is really key here, that, that he's, he's clearly focused on it, and he has to get, if he's going to do something, get started soon. Because one thing we all know is that the daily crises just consume you. And that's why, you know, we all agree that he has a good team in McMaster, in Mattis, in, in Nikki Haley, I think, is doing a great job at the UN. Um, there's a lot of crises, we've talked about a couple of them, that will take up all of your time if you don't have someone sitting down and saying, what's our strategy? On something like Middle East peace, that's not a daily crisis, thankfully, right now. So what could these negotiations look like, and how do we get there? You know, when we restarted the negotiations in 2013, that took dozens of hours of the Secretary of State on the ground. I was there for a lot of them to even get them at the table again. That may not be the right model, but I hope if I were to give them advice that the Trump administration is thinking through, and the, the visit to Israel will be very important, and the Abbas meeting was important, but finding time in this crazy world to think about how that might happen because the days will get away from you very quickly. Well, that, be that begs the question, it, is, is there too much on Jared Kushner's plate? Well, hopefully he's not doing it by himself. Maybe you could ask Brett McGurk to help out. Oh, That's the last time I'll mention him. I, just, I need I can't a bingo help. card. I, I would already have bingo yes, yellow card. Yeah, right. see, you got a yellow card. Thank well, you. Isn't that the strategy to, to go and meet with the Israelis and meet with the Saudis and to get the Gulf states to put pressure on the Palestinians to accept a two-state solution and also to get... Israel to accept it as well, based on yeah, this new alliance between Saudi Arabia and Israel, at least the hopes of that, to counter Iranian influence yeah. in the region. So, so it was interesting when Secretary Kerry gave his quite controversial speech about Middle East peace before we left office. One of the most interesting things to come out of that that didn't get a lot of coverage, but was that a lot of the Arab states who had been part of the Arab Peace Initiative did publicly agree to the notion of recognizing Israel as a Jewish state. Now, that's not determinative, but that's kind of important, right? So, again, I don't want to keep going back to staffing, but every administration who's ever tried to do this appointed someone very senior to be an envoy to Middle East peace because it takes so much legwork. It takes so much on-the-ground work. We had Martin Indyk. People remember Dennis Ross and others. Um, do we – I mean, is that Jared? Who? No, but he – yeah. His, his attorney, yeah, who's based out of the White House, right? Is that right? So is he the person, then to your point, <coughs> is he the person that is going to be playing that role? Right. So we'll... 
He has, you're right, he has been named, but it's like you asked the question about Jared. What does that mean? And is there a team at the State Department, as there has always been for every administration of both parties, including presidents, both Bushes, supporting him with a plan to get negotiations back on track? I hope that he has a team and that he's working with these folks with a plan. I hope. So your argument is that, you know, the State Department needs to be staffed. This needs to be led more from a State Department. Not necessarily led from the State Department. Look, I'm, I worked in... Because there's no secret that Obama centralized a lot of foreign yeah. policy. The president's president has his people around him, and I actually don't begrudge people that. Um, my bigger, broader point is naming people to positions does not equal plans. And I want to see evidence that there is a plan in place if they're going to move on Middle East peace. What do we think about his itinerary for his upcoming trip? Well, it makes it's, total sense. Yeah, it's a meeting with the top three religions. You're meeting, you're going to Saudi Arabia, home of Mecca. You're meeting at the Vatican, and you're going to to Israel. So I think it's it's good, and we'll see what what comes of of this trip. Uh, again, it's you know getting the Pope to weigh in on this peace process to. Trump's going to have some tough words for him, I think, on some issues, oh, too, yeah. like immigration and refugees. Right, right. right. I, I suspect. And the Saudi Arabia part is interesting to me, too, because for Middle East watchers, he had the, one of the things I think they've done differently than the Trump administration is try and become closer to Saudi Arabia. You see it in, in their rhetoric on Yemen, I think, um, and on some other issues, but that is not a surprising stop on the first trip. But I think that that is one relationship they are certainly trying to well, and it comes back to Iran again, right? And so the Iranian elections are on May 19th. Um, it's, and it seems like not much has really been said about that. I think everyone's kind of holding their powder dry. You know, we can't really forget what happened in 2009 as well, when a lot of the Obama administration faced a lot of criticism for not supporting the Green Revolution, which is a question for you. I mean, that question comes up all the time. Why didn't they support it? And, uh, and should Trump support one if one... Right. So, And this is an interesting... Right, taking it to the Trump administration, I will very briefly touch on 2009. But, you know, one of the one of the things, one of the recommendations I've tried to give to Trump administration officials, at least publicly if they ever watch me on Fox, is, which there's a good bet, probably sometimes they do, um, is with some of the hardline rhetoric here in the U.S., you are unintentionally... Uh, giving some, you're empowering people in Iran that you probably don't want to empower. They're hardliners. And so if you actually, and they are not a monolith, right? I mean, Rouhani is not a liberal or a moderate, but he is different in what policies he would pursue than someone like Raisi, one of the other candidates. So if you take this tougher, harder line on Iran, you may end up empowering the people you actually don't want to empower. I think he should stay out of it. I think the U.S. should stay out of Iranian politics as much as we possibly can. In 2009, we heard a lot from Iranian dissidents and folks that were protesting the election that the worst thing we could do to help them was to get involved and look like we were supporting them. That's a death sentence for an Iranian political movement, having the backing of the great Satan, right? I mean, that's so, so. So maybe we can ask Russia to interfere. Is that a recommendation to I don't the know. Maybe, who, would they, who would they prefer as a candidate? I think that the Iranians... Or Rouhani? Who would the Russians... I mean, the Russians, I will say, despite all of their 
nasty activity in a lot of places. During the Iran nuclear negotiations, they were incredibly tough on the Iranians, and given their extensive knowledge of nuclear technology, didn't get them, didn't let them get away with a whole lot. Um, you know, I don't know who the Russians would prefer. I think it's a good U.S. policy not to pick winners and losers in other political systems. I don't know. As a general matter. Right. I don't trust polls here. I'm not going to trust polls in Iran. You know, this is... <laughs> So the one place that we haven't touched on, and there's been some news about it today, is Afghanistan. And I know Michael had some views about Afghanistan. Well, this is the Middle East and Southwest Asia. I mean, so today we're we're hearing uh, a, a surge component being floated by the administration, an additional 3,000 U.S. troops out of the 82nd Airborne Division. Um, and it's focused on the ISIS fight. So there's there's a new focus in in Afghanistan on ISIS mm -hmm. and, the, and the resurgence of ISIS, not the resurgence, but basically ISIS rolling into places like Libya and Afghanistan to compensate for the loss of territory in Iraq and Syria and what we, we, we're going to do about that. Um, the thinking is that the Taliban is, is anti-ISIS. Absent the threat of U.S. forces, they fight each other. When there are U.S. forces, I've seen, I've seen uh, and certain groups that are opposed to each other actually coalesce and, they all fight and, us. Fight, and fight us until we're not there, and they fight each other. So we have, we have to call Russia on its support for the Taliban, providing lethal aid to the Taliban, because they're not saying only use this lethal aid against ISIS when the Taliban is still attacking American forces, and, and ISIS is now able to conduct car bomb attacks in, in Kabul. So there needs to be a focus... On Afghanistan, I think the, the reason there's a new focus by McMaster and Mattis is they were there in the beginning. You you worked with Mattis uh, or McMaster in that capacity. They were there in the beginning, and they they saw where we could have done things differently and actually uh, prevented this from being a 15-year war or 16-year war now. And and the thing is, you know, if this surge is different, and this is one key takeaway that I've I've seen from the Trump administration. You can announce a surge, but don't announce a withdrawal date. It's ineffective. If you tell a very patient enemy you're going to surge with 15,000 troops, but you're going to leave in a year, the patient enemy waits you out, and then they do something. So we got to get away from end dates. I think 3,000 is too low, but if it's specifically focused on ISIS in uh, Nangar province, where the Moab was dropped, then that's that, that's a good thing. Uh, one thing that I've seen also is the delay of, of reporting the death of an ISIS leader. Um, yeah. Under the Obama administration, and, and Osama bin Laden's death, of course, it's, it's a different death because we wanted him dead and it was good for the nation, was reported four hours after his death, basically silencing the intel community's ability to intercept al-Qaeda cells talking about the death of their leader that would have resulted in a lot of follow-on intel and a lot of raids. Um, with Abu Sayyaf, remember the CFO in Syria that was uh, the number four guy in ISIS about a year and a half ago when we killed him in the raid? We announced that death four hours after afterwards. And what happens is everybody throws their cell phones away and everybody goes to the mattresses. What I've noticed with the Trump administration is they're announcing things three weeks after the death. They're announcing things a week after the death. And that allows the intelligence community, especially the CIA and NSA, to go after the network. Let the network tell you someone's dead so that you can exploit it instead of telling the network someone's dead and everybody throws their phones away and, and changes locations. And I think that's a key thing, and I like that. So I think 
Um, I was CIA spokesperson during the bin Laden raid and, and did a lot of the public piece of this. The challenge, I mean, that was such a unique yeah, thing. it's a different In case. part because you had people standing outside the compound taking cell phone videos. I mean, the CIA and the military are grappling now with how you do these things where you tell the world that we've had a success when in 10 minutes there could be lots of photos, some of them fake, some of them doctored. We saw all the fake bin Laden death photos. I mean, in, in part, it's a tough balance because you don't want a bunch of false information. And you know the SST we got out of the bin Laden compound, just the stuff we were able to collect was of enormous intelligence value. So it is a tough balance, and I, I grant you that it's a question we should keep asking ourselves. On Afghanistan, I would ask both of you, to what end? What is our fundamental national interest in Afghanistan? And I don't know that I have the answer to this, but after... Mm -hmm. The notion that next year kids born after 9-11 can enlist and fight in this war is stunning to me. And if I can't articulate clearly what, are not, what should be the national interest there and then what resources should we put towards that, when we got it, was it really the decimation of al-Qaeda there? That was certainly a core interest. Is it destroying the Taliban? I don't think that will ever happen. So what does that look like? Is it making sure there's a functioning government? I mean, all of these things have been part of the conversation for the last 16 years. And I would love for both of you to, what do you think the Trump administration should make the core interest and then a policy should flow from there? But what is that? I so guess I would One say. of the things that I think is important uh, and, and I hope to see more of is the Trump administration learning from the mistakes of previous administrations. So, Michael, you mentioned an important one, which was the Obama administration set a troop withdrawal deadline for Afghanistan, which was a huge mistake. And the Trump administration has hopefully learned from that. Um, the Obama administration also followed a troop withdrawal deadline for Iraq, which was actually set under the Bush administration. And I hope the Trump administration will learn from that as well. With respect to Afghanistan, the end game is very difficult to uh, to come up with because um, there's not a lot of hope for Afghanistan to be fully secure and to, ha to be economically viable on its own, which really requires a long-term presence by the U.S. and by the coalition, however unsettling that is to the American people. And I think the Trump administration is beginning to realize that. The increase in, in troops is a recognition of that. We have a pretty good partner in uh, Ashraf Ghani, mm -hmm. and, and he, but he's going to need our support to survive. And I think that's what the, where the Trump administration is headed. Do you wanna, I think so we're going to have question time. Yeah, just one quick thing. Anybody who's ever played the game of risk knows you cannot control Afghanistan. There's no way to <laughs> yeah. stay on it. So It's funny. Risk was also on my bingo card. And then we'll, we'll open it to questions. The gentleman here in front, White. White? Oh, this gentleman right here. General Kimmett. There's a mic coming. <laughs> Not that you need it. But. First of all, let me go back to the old premise that politics stops at the water's edge. So let's talk about foreign policy. I didn't hear a lot of foreign policy today. I heard a lot of anecdotal evidence about Middle East issues. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the entire foreign policy, which I'm trying to grapple with at this point. Number one, well, reflect on these. Can you five. identify yourself, if you don't mind? Yeah, I'm Mark Kim, and I used to be Uniform Military, DOD, and State Department. Um, so I've got a little bit of association with all of this. Um, tell me what these five incidents mean as Trump foreign policy. Push back on North Korea with regards to their missile program. 
telling the Russians that we're going to outspend you if you increase your nuclear arsenal. Push back in Iran, the famous red line that was drawn by Flynn. Um, the attack on Syria. I mean, what it, it would appear to me that there's some cohesion to this strategy that goes beyond sort of these. This is not a swap payment with a bunch of little dots. Mm. Tell me what this overall strategy means in terms of foreign policy on three levels. Number one, tell me what it means from a defense point of view. Number two, has the Department of Defense taken over the role of foreign policy in this country? And number three, in terms of those other functions of foreign policy, diplomacy and development, what's going on there? The DoD part and pass it to you. So, so, the, so the one thing that 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 we've advised the Trump administration uh, through some of my colleagues, and I had a chance to brief the transition team, uh, was, and, and you can see this with what McMaster and Mattis is doing, is their main emphasis is defeat ISIS and curb Iranian influence in the Middle East. Put the war against ISIS back under DOD as opposed to State Department like it was in the Obama administration. And, and to start doing those things. Now, whether or not the 59 cruise missile attack in Syria is tied to that, it still sends a message that things are changing, that this is a, an unpredictable administration. In some cases, that, that works. In some cases, it doesn't. But the, the overarching DOD strategy for the Middle East, North Africa, Southwest Asia is defeat ISIS and curb Iranian influence. And then you can talk to the State well, Department. So from a foreign policy perspective, when it comes to diplomacy, I, it was sort of what I got at earlier. Personnel is policy in my mind, as are budgets, quite frankly. And the things you mentioned are all um, sort of flashes in the pan. And I, I'm not saying that negatively. I, I don't mean to say that negatively. But, but General Flynn walked out and drew a red line. But... What did that mean? In if you're sitting at the State Department and you say, okay, now I have to implement a new policy, it's, it's not clear what the second, third, fourth, fifth, what that means from a policy perspective. I mean, if I had been sitting at the State Department, I would have heard that. Maybe they did tell them, here's what that means from a diplomatic perspective. Go back to the Iranians and say X, Y, Z. Maybe they did. I just haven't seen that. So all of those things you mentioned, I think, are designed... This is an administration that, that pays an enormous amount of attention to how things play publicly. I mean, the president watches a lot of media. He sees how things play out in the press and on Twitter more than I think other administrations probably have. And so all of those are designed to send messages. My point in the di diplomatic conversation we had earlier was I agree with some of those messages. Some I don't, some I do. My question, and I haven't seen evidence publicly yet, is beneath those messages, is there... Are there people in the diplomatic corps working on them? But is there, from a diplomatic perspective, is there a document that says, okay, we threw a, we threw a, um, a warning shot at North Korea. Is there a diplomatic strategy on a couple pieces of paper that says, here's how we're going to try and get back to five-party or whatever kind of negotiations. Here are the specific levers we're pushing with China. Here's what specifically we would need out of North Korea. I mean, I have a lot of suggestions for all of that. But that isn't where they've been focused, at least publicly, in talking about foreign policy. <coughs> and it leads me to worry that there's not an emphasis on diplomacy as a, as a detailed tool or tactic, but more as a way to publicly send signals to other countries that, that were different than the Obama administration. Well, General Kimmett, I think your question is, what is this president's foreign policy? And that's an important question because let's try, it helps question. us. I thought that's what I came Yeah, from. it helps us figure out uh, what 
for us and our allies figure out what is the president going to do next so that we have some certainty and understanding and predictive ability for what the future holds. And you mentioned these five things and asked us to connect the, connect the dots. I personally cannot connect the dots. I cannot see any consistency to them. And then if you compare it to what this president has said his foreign policy will be, which is America first, which is pull back from the world, which is be less involved, which is to do less nation building, it doesn't make sense at all because those things suggest that we're going to be more involved. There is one thing that sort of is consistent, which he seems to be against proliferation, uh, against the use of chemical weapons. Okay, that makes sense, but that's not really consistent with um, an America first policy. My own personal view is, like Michael said, there are some, there are a couple things that we know this administration should be doing, and it's a continuation of what the Obama administration was focusing on, which is to fight ISIS and to defeat ISIS. I think it should also be to stop the creation of failed states and to support countries that are on their way to being failed states so that they don't become failed states, because if they do, they will be places that are hospitable to groups like ISIS. So it's sort of a, a, a sub-objective to fighting ISIS and defeating ISIS. But what else this president can do and intends to do, I'm not sure. If you look at Iraq and you look at Syria, you could come up with some consistent planning for what you want the future to look like. I personally think it's going to require uh, acknowledging that Iraq is never going to go back together as one country and to decentralizing in Iraq, decentralizing resources, decentralizing security. And it, the, the longer we take to get to that, the more likely it is that Iraq will break up into separate countries. I think you could say that might be the same for Syria, that Syria needs a political solution that will also require decentralization <coughs> and greater representation for different, the different groups, ethnicities, and sectarian groups in Syria. But I don't see that type of deep thinking in terms of foreign policy coming out of this administration yet. And the first 100 days haven't given us a lot of hopeful hints, I think. Well, and that goes back to the question I asked earlier, is how different is Trump's foreign policy to Obama's so far? Um, the gentleman next to you. Fine. Thank you. Rahim Rashidi from Kurdistan TV. In your opinion, what are differences between Obama and Trump administration for the Kurds? Thank you. You all look at you. Well, I, I mean, I'm very involved with the Kurds. I mean, full disclosure with the, the Kurds and the Kurdistan regional government and, and have worked with them for a long time and um, worked with them and the struggles that they face. Um, I'm not sure I see a difference yet in the Trump administration's um, view or um, policy towards the Kurds from the Obama administration. It's not discernible in my view. Um, I, I think that uh, the Kurds would welcome a greater engagement by the U.S. and a much larger presence by the U.S. in Iraq. And it seems like we're going that way, but it's not, it's not clear yet. Branch out to someone in the back, the uh, lady. Yeah. I'll get to you. <laughs> Anne Pierce, author and commentator. I want to ask a question about how best to pressure Assad to go, because I don't agree that the Obama administration's policy was that Assad must go. 
think both before and after the red line, both before and after Obama made that muted suggestion that Assad should go, there was a turning down of pretty much every positive humanitarian and strategic proposal from Sarkozy's recommendation of a humanitarian corridor to multiple recommendations for safe zones and arming rebels and all that sort of thing. So, and then most of all, going along with one Russian plan after another, which often had the effect of buying Assad time and cover just when time was running out. The Russian plans were really something that Obama tended to go along with. So I wanted to ask Michael Pregent, when you're talking about our trying to create some balance with all these zones being set up by Iran and Turkey and Russia, and you say that we should be actively setting up our own zones in one way or another, how does that fit in with the idea that Assad must go? And how, under such a divided kind of strategy, would you have an overarching strategy that this butcher, you know, needs to leave? I think the window's closing. I think Putin lost a lot of leverage after the 59 cruise missile strike on Assad following the chemical attack. That was a time to engage that Assad must go. The good thing about Putin, Erdogan, and Trump is they're all transactional presidents. Putin was weakened after this strike, but has now rebounded, unfortunately, with the establishment of these safe zones and by moving Assad's air force to these bases. So, again, like I said before, everything that the Russians and the Iranians have done so far has been based on the calculation that the U.S. would do nothing about it. And Trump changed that with this strike, but we're losing. The windows of opportunity is closing, and where Putin was weak three weeks ago, I don't think he's as weak now. I think, I mean, that's my thought on that. Gentlemen, the blue suit. And then you, sir. My name is Paul Johnson. I'm a Persianist living here in Washington, D.C. And many years ago, in the early 70s, I had the wonderful opportunity to live in Iran and study Persian at the University of Tehran and also teach at our USIS language school, which was two blocks away from the university. The building's still there. Iranians do teach there, but it's different. Now, one weekend or one term in October, and I think it was during Ramadan in 73, I had a student sitting in the back of the room. He would sit there and glare at me and never responded in class. And then one night when I came to class, the director, Iranian director of the institute said, well, you can't go into that room anymore because it was bombed. All right. Bombs occurred. Everything worked out fine. I came back to the United States and did some degrees here. But about three years ago, they had a Mujahideen-e-Khalq meeting in Georgetown. They had people from the Mujahideen-e-Khalq at the corner of, what is it, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin Avenue in front of where the clock is. I was standing there looking at them, and they were chanting in Persian. And lo and behold, who's standing next to me? The person who bombed my class. 
Did you say hello? Okay. So we talked, and I told him, well, you know, I, I feel that the majority. But get I, want to, I want you to come on. Okay. okay, I'll forget it. I want you to comment on what I'm saying. Uh, the, my point is that the, we were the talking MEK? there. <sighs> okay. Yes. Sir, I'm, you're, you're telling a story. Get okay, okay, question. fine. Several months ago, I was watching television. And now, because Mujahideen al means the people's Mujahideen, everybody feels that the people's Mujahideen is wonderful. Mm -hmm. It's not like the Hezbollah, which, of course, means the same thing. I saw exactly the same person sitting in Congress behind the people who were uh, talking in Congress in an official televised session the same person. We have been infiltrated. And that's the kind of thing that happens because we do not know the history of the country. Okay, thank you very much. And if you have any comments about this, please ask. If you the MEK has a PR problem they deal with every day. You're not the only person who remembers who they are and they're dealing with it every day. This, these attacks happened in 72, like you said. Um, they have a PR issue mm -hmm. that they're working on. And they're a lot of money to help yep. fix it. All right. Um, we promised this gentleman a question here in the front. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my name is Radwan Masmoudi. I'm president of the Center for the Study of Islam and Democracy. My question is, what's after ISIS? I can see that the goal is to get rid of ISIS. And I think militarily we are more than capable mm -hmm. of getting rid of ISIS. But we haven't really solved the underlying problems that are causing groups like ISIS to grow in the Arab world, mm -hmm. which is lack of opportunity, which is corrupt and oppressive regimes that we now seem to be going back to the old policy of supporting those regimes in the name of stability and forgetting that those regimes that are corrupt and oppressive are the reasons that millions or thousands at least of young people are turning to extremism. <clears throat> So what about the ideals of democracy and human rights and supporting and standing up for those values in order to really defeat extremism? You know, I don't think authoritarian regimes are the solution. So I'll just say something about this, and I'm sure you have thoughts too. Um, you're absolutely right, and that's why the... Uh, lopsided focus, I would argue, in the current administration on military hardware versus diplomacy or development or aid programs that support human rights or democratization groups. Um, it's much harder work <coughs> to do, as you know, but it, you, can do, you can make so much progress for so much less money than you can building a bomb. Can you give him a yellow card? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, Rex Tillerson has been on the record, he, he and his advisors have been on the record calling the State Department the Titanic, saying it's sinking and they're going to significantly cut 
personnel, including by some forced retirements. And it may not be cut by 33%, but he supports that number in general over a period of time, not over a year. So yes, and I think Bob Corker and others will come to our rescue and make sure the budget isn't slashed as much, but it will be cut. And it's not just a budget, it's where you put the resources. I mean, just a personal um, point of, of reference for a second, when I, as an Obama administration official, said, we're going to kill a lot of terrorists, but in the long term, we have to address conditions like jobs and opportunity. I became an internet meme <coughs> that dumb blonde says, ISIS just needs jobs and they'll stop killing us. And not just a meme on the internet, but something Republican members of Congress asked my boss about in a hearing. So when the conversation about how you fight terrorism in the long term here at home politically becomes so ridiculous, and not based on what experts from people like you to military commanders say, yeah, we can kill them and we're going to keep killing them. But in the long term, how do you create opportunities so young men and women don't want to strap bombs to themselves? That takes a long-term commitment from USAID, from the State Department, from our partner countries, building up partner capacity where they are trying to make inroads towards democracy, places like Tunisia. There are some examples where this is sort of working. <clears throat> I, that is a recommendation I would scream from the rooftops to the Trump administration, and people like you making that case is so important for this, for this effort. So I would just add, um, uh, so there's there are always going to be groups like ISIS that are appealing to young, disaffected, disenfranchised, <coughs> economically um, oppressed youth. But... I, so and and you mentioned some of those causes. They're innumerable, but you mentioned some of them. But I also look at this from a slightly different angle, which is what led the local populations to support and tolerate ISIS yeah. in Syria and Iraq. And in this case, these are the Sunni populations. And some of those, some of the things that led to that are mistakes that were made that we can correct and have to correct. And if you take Iraq, for instance, it was the mistake of letting uh, Prime Minister Maliki uh, run the Baghdad government as a sectarian government that only provided support and resources to the Shiite community and that um, tried to minimize the, the, the importance and the legitimacy and the capability of Sunni leaders in Iraq, he ran out every capable Sunni leader from Baghdad and ultimately left the Sunni areas in Iraq so disenfranchised, oppressed, and with the view that the government of Baghdad did not support them, did not listen to them, and did not represent them, such that when ISIS came along, they were at least willing to look the other way and, and let them be there, and in, many and in other cases, join them and support them. And you could say the same about Syria, um, the lack of support for the Sunni opposition in Syria and the lack of ability of the Sunni opposition to, uh, to get, uh, the, 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 to coalesce the support that it needed to oppose Assad also led to some Sunni populations in Syria looking the other way when ISIS came in town or even looking to ISIS as their saviors. We are working on correcting those and we need to focus on those things. We, we went, went over. If, if you're happy to stay, we'll take, we'll take a question. Maybe a couple more. We could talk about this all day, as you can probably tell. Uh, just as a <laughs> courtesy to our audience. Yes. <laughs> we won't be offended if you leave. I'm Penny Starr with Breitbart News. And you were talking about the staffing at the State Department, which interests me because 
while you're saying they need to get people in there, there's also criticism about Obama holdovers, about there being a lot of acting people at the State Department in particular. And interestingly, uh, I know that uh, on the campaign trail, or even past then, Trump has said he wasn't going to have a special envoy on climate change, and yet there is a sp the same one that worked, I think, with you. Is that uh, it's trip? Yeah, no, our special envoy left. But, but he, it says that he was appointed by Obama, though. I don't know who that is. You don't know who that is? No. Anyway, there I mean, is, I can I wonder, look at it, but I don't. I, I just, well, I wondered what that role is playing in what's Yeah, well, so you're, I don't know about that specific person. I'm happy to look into it. The bigger question is when, yes, these positions exist. And so when there's not an appointee made by the administration, someone acts in an acting capacity. Generally, at the State Department, that is a career foreign service officer. So it's a nonpartisan career person who's worked who works for both democrats and republicans that's generally how it works um but which is interesting because one of the things president trump was very clear about is that that he wants his people in place and i don't begrudge him that so ironically by not appointing people you're getting career folks that are very competent and i i don't want to discount their competency at all but if he wants people in there putting his own views forward he needs to send some staffing suggestions and, you know, there was early criticism of, of Congress for not, you know, now they've approved everyone that's been nominated. I mean, they're waiting for nominations to come to them. Uh, almost everyone. I think some folks are, are still are still waiting. But, yeah, I mean, the State Department is, uh, someone needs to be the Assistant Secretary for Near Eastern Affairs. If the Trump administration doesn't appoint someone, a career foreign service officer will very capably act in that role. But when they're talking to a foreign government, they don't carry the same weight always of representing the president. And for a president who has very, I think, specific and unique views on foreign policy, that personal representation really matters, I think, to our partners, I think. You're in charge. We've lost a panel member, so. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It's okay. I'm just teasing you. <laughs> uh, so I just want to... Uh, 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 bring up the visit of the next week of uh, President Erdogan. Uh, I think you didn't mention that. I think in Syria, if in in, in uh, Syria you have Iran as a problem, in Syria you have Turkey also as a problem. How do you think the role of uh, Turkey mm -hmm. is really, you know, is a, as a uh, something that is going to help? That let's say there is a policy, there is yeah. a policy for Syria. How much is Turkey really helping or hurting? that policy uh, in, in Syria for the Trump administration? So I'm going to say something very quickly, but then I want you to answer this because you know this better than I do. The relationship with Erdogan is fascinating because, yes, he's a NATO ally, but they also have enormous uh, governance and human rights problems at home. And one fundamental underlying uh, principle of Trump foreign policy appears to be respect for very strong leaders, some would call them strong men, and a less... Uh, focus on human rights. And Erdogan is the classic example when he congratulated him after that election for basically consolidating power. That is something new in American foreign policy. But you talk about the specifics here in Syria. Well, first of all, I completely agree with what you just said. It's just stupefying that President Trump would have congratulated Erdogan on, on that accomplishment, on changing the Constitution and putting himself in power for another 12 years. Um, and especially given all the other changes that have happened in Turkey, the, the crackdown on journalists and on media and on any opposition. Uh, I'm very concerned about what's happening with Turkey. I'm worried that 
President Trump is not going to have the right agenda for the visit with Erdogan, which, which I believe should be uh, an agenda in which he is counseling Erdogan on the things that he needs to do to make Turkey more democratic. Um, I'm also worried about um, the new alliance between Turkey and Russia and perhaps even Assad with respect to Turkey, to uh, Syria. Certainly Turkey has not been always um, a positive force in Syria. It, it, it did not um, control the flow of foreign fighters uh, to Syria to, for ISIS the way it should have. Um, it, it, it has improved its record on that some, but I'm still not convinced that it's fully dedicated to preventing um, support for ISIS going through the, uh, Turkey. And I worry about what Turkey's true motives are in Syria and Iraq, uh, given uh, uh, its, its position with respect to the Kurds. Thank you. Uh, my my comment, I'd like your input in, is I I I sense that perhaps we're over sort of analyzing what his <laughs> policies are because one, I just. In, in fairness, he's still sort of in the first bottom of the first inning, and his policies are evolving from his campaign rhetoric, and he's yeah. learning on the job, if you will. But I think it's still it's somewhat consistent. In there is not going to be no ideological consistency. It's a more pragmatic approach to pursuing Americans' interest. And in when there is a dichotomy between pursuing our interest of, for instance, solving problems in Turkey, Syria, in Iraq. Uh, versus values such as human interest, he's going to decide and what what it takes to solve the problem, and that you know supporting Turkey or whatever it takes to get the problem done. To me, that's how I read everything that's going on. Well, we probably also, despite the name of the panel, agree that 100 days is not a lot of time, and it's this sort of media-driven um, deadline. So you're right; we have a long way to go, and I I think that. He is a president who didn't come in with a lot of foreign policy experience and is learning. And I think that's inevitable and a good thing. Um, yeah? Just the one thing about the surge, real quick. Um, so it just popped into his head. It, it did, I yeah. would love to know how these all. Only because we said 100 days, right? So, <laughs> so Trump's announcing a surge in Afghanistan the first 110 days. I thought I turned this on. Um, wrong song, sorry. Just yell. All right, so Trump announced a surge in Afghanistan the first 100 days. Remember, Bush announced his surge in 2007. Only had a year to go before Obama took over, right? Yeah. So this, it's good to get a surge in early when you have four years to make sure that it actually changes momentum on the battlefield, where Bush lost that opportunity because he implemented it his basically last year. Too late. President. But I'm going to agree with you that I agree how you described what I think the Trump administration's focus on is on. Um, the... The question I would pose to you and to others is something that I think John McCain was trying to get at in his op-ed. There are times when interests and values conflict and you have to prioritize. And I agree, and I think that particularly my party, when we argue they don't ever, is putting our head in the sand. So I agree with you. Um, I think the broader point Senator McCain was trying to make, and we sort of got at it in this question about how long-term you fight radicalization, 
is they're not always mutually exclusive, and that in fact they can be mutually reinforcing. And to ignore, or seemingly, at least based on what Secretary Tillerson has said, to fundamentally put aside human rights as not part of the conversation, I think hurts the interest, will in the medium and long term hurt the interest side as well. That's a broader point, but I think you're absolutely right about how they would describe their foreign policy and how it looks now. Um, you're compl- I think you're completely on point. Do you have anything there? Is that it? Are we done? We're going to wrap. Okay. Thank you all for coming. Thank you so much. <laughs> huh?